Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. To view the entirety of our service, please visit our Facebook page at The Tabernacle Family or our YouTube channel at The Tabernacle Today. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3. And as you turn there, I want to tell you, 250 years ago, on this very day, February 4th, 1774, a Baptist preacher named David Tinsley was arrested in Chesterfield County, Virginia. His crime was being a Baptist and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here are the churches as the charges as they're recorded in the register. David Tinsley being committed, charged with having assembled and preached to the people at sundry times and places in this county as a Baptist preacher, and the said David acknowledging in court that he has done so. He said, yep, I did it. I was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people. And it says then, on consideration thereof, the court being of good opinion that the same is the breach of the peace and good behavior. What's a breach of the peace and good behavior? Preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ rather than going along with the state church who at the time didn't believe in preaching the new birth and didn't believe in uh, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it was a crime. At that time, they would take your taxes and they'd give them to the state church, the Anglican church, whether you went to it or not. And so Baptists, as they were born again and started forming their own churches in Virginia and other colonies, many times had their tax money taken to support the state church they didn't go to and then were for arrested for over, coming over here and as born-again Christians being baptized and gathering together in regenerate church membership. It says, It's ordered that he give surety for keeping the peace and of being of good behavior for one year next ensuing himself in the penalty of 50 pounds and two shorties in penalty of 25 pounds each and that was chesterfield county virginia order book february 4th 1774 tinsley was one of at least 34 baptist preachers imprisoned in virginia in the 1760s and 70s for preaching biblical doctrine instead of the doctrine of the state sponsored anglican church and he wound up spending four months and 16 days in prison well, I'm glad that for preaching today, the police won't bust in and arrest me and keep me out of here for the next four or five months. But some of our forefathers and mothers, that was their experience. So what did he do while he was in there? Well, during that time, he and his fellow prisoners preached through the grate in the jail to crowds that gathered outside. And the magistrates were so frustrated by that, they actually built another wall and a, a, a little bit further out so that he couldn't be seen from the grate. But when crowds would gather, they would put a bandana, a handkerchief on a pole, and they'd raise it up so Tinsley and his fellow Baptist preachers in there could see it, and he would preach Jesus to a crowd who couldn't see him, and many were saved. The preacher and his crowd of old and new converts were actually called the Bandana Brigade. So sometime uh, this week, kids, get a bandana, put it on a pole, raise it up and say, we're part of the bandana brigade. We'll preach the gospel of Jesus Christ no matter what. 
The great Patrick Henry, you know, Patrick and Henry counties over here, Patrick Henry personally delivered money raised by Baptists to get him out. He was so effective that only twice more were Baptist jailed for preaching in Virginia in 1775 and 1778. But such was the lot of many of our early uh, Baptist forefathers, and their crime was preaching and uh, gathering a church other than the state church. Today we're going to look at Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River. And it's going to give us an opportunity to look at why believers' baptism by immersion is such a precious teaching for followers of Jesus Christ. Now, in the back of your notes, I've given you the state of Southern Baptists and baptism uh, in the year 2022. And what it shows is if a baptism represents someone turning to Christ and being born again, then it represents uh, coming out of the pandemic, we have a real need to reach the next generation for Jesus Christ, the next generation of children and youth and young adults and older adults. Last week, we had a 59-year-old man baptized, professing his faith publicly like that for the first time. And we want to continue to tell people that they can find salvation in Jesus and their first step of obedience after turning to Christ and being born again is believer's baptism by immersion. Well, how did it go? Back in 1972, the most ever Southern Baptist Church baptisms happened, 445,725 in that year. But you can see by 2018, there was a 74-year low as... Our church is aged, and we sometimes forgot to evangelize, and we forgot to keep on going to the hardest parts of our communities and cities and areas and things like that. A 74-year low. And then the pandemic came and cratered to about half those numbers, and last year, 180,000. So it's on the way up. But the great question is, are we going to reach people or not? As churches across the country, as a local church, are we going to reach people and continue to see them turn to Christ and then be baptized in obedience to the Lord? So the numbers could go up, they could stay the same, they could plateau down. And you say, well, golly, with Southern Baptists having those low numbers, does that mean that Southern Baptists aren't somebody we should affiliate with? No, you don't want to criticize a thing for being honest, do you? Because these numbers would be the same if we did independent Baptist churches. It'd be the same if we looked at Bible churches, non-denominational churches, etc. We need a revival in our churches, and we need an awakening in the land, don't we? And we want to be part of it through our prayers, through our giving, through our going, through our courageous sharing our testimonies with people that we go to school with and work with. Look at how that breaks down to percentages of churches. Last year, the year 2022, which would actually be September 1 year of 21 to August of 22, the way the calendar works for Southern Baptist, 43% of the churches baptized no one. Zero people. 34% baptized one to five. 9% baptized 6 to 9. That's what we did in 21-22. And 13% baptized 10 or more. And we baptized 11 in 22-23. So it's different than the calendar year. Last week, uh, earlier this year, we reported that for 2023 as a calendar year, we baptized 10 people. So one in four only had six or more baptisms, people turning to Christ and being baptized. One in eight, 10 or more. And of course, you're aware, if you know anything about the history of the tabernacle, we've had at least twice where we had 100 baptized in one day, and we've reached a lot of people over the years. But we find ourselves in a world that has rejected Christ, and we need to continue to reach out in love and truth and win people to the Lord. Amen? 
Overall, Southern Baptist Church has averaged 5.4 baptisms per church in 2022. And then it breaks down and you see that urban churches average more than suburban and rural. And newer churches average more baptisms than older churches. It's an unfortunate reality that the older a church gets, it winds up turning inward and winds up being more like a country club, being more like a cruise ship than being like an aircraft carrier. And so pastors like me and godly ones among you have to continually be challenging each other to say, we're going to be more like that aircraft carrier. We come, we fuel, we worship God, we refuel, and we go back out like aircraft carrier planes do. We go back out to our areas of influence and reach people for Jesus Christ out there where they are. We come back in fuel, we go out. We're constantly on mission with God to bring boys and girls, men and women to faith in Jesus Christ. But you can see how it is. The older a church gets, sometimes it forgets. And that's one of the reasons why I so love our cooperative program giving and partnerships within the Southern Baptist Convention because often our church plants wind up reaching people right out of the gate for Jesus in a way that we've forgotten to do. So we have to remember or else we're not justifying our own existence and then we need to keep on planting churches that will plant churches, reaching people who will reach people. And so there you go. That's the state of things and our desire to be part of continuing to reach people for Jesus Christ as we go forward, even as we partner with others and fund others doing the great work of evangelism and discipleship. Matthew 3, verse 13 through 17. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John. That's John the Baptist. We saw that earlier in chapter 3. John the Baptist was baptizing by the Jordan River. And it says, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan River to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John the Baptist consented. You know, when I read these words of Jesus, let it be so now. For thus it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. I just have such a big smile on my face and inside when I read those words. We serve a God who will never ask us to do anything he didn't personally model. And when Jesus was baptized, verse 16, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove, not as a dove, like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. A fitting founder, let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much for this passage. Thank you, Jesus, for getting baptized and showing that you're not going to ask us ever to do anything you didn't personally model. Thank you for the difference between John the Baptist's unique baptism, uh, a kind of washing to get people ready to meet Jesus, and Christian baptism, which is identification with your death for us, your burial of our sins, and your rising from the dead to give life to all who would believe. 
Thank you so much that you are a fitting founder for everybody that places their faith and trust in you. And Lord, as we go through this passage, we pray that you'll be lifted up. You promise that if you're lifted up, you'll draw people to yourself. And so, Lord, I don't know what the area of obedience that those hearing me today need to be about. For some, it may be as a believer, being immersed as a believer. For others, it may be recognizing that even as you call us to purity, you modeled purity in every area of your life. You call us to pray and you modeled prayer so beautifully and so sacrificially. And Lord, I thank you that you're a savior like that. You're a Lord like that. And Lord, I pray that uh, we will act by faith on that knowledge today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Right off the bat in verses 13 and 14, we see that John knew, John the Baptist knew he was not worthy to baptize Jesus. So look at verse 13. It says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan River to John, John the Baptist, to be baptized by him. Now from Luke 3.23, we learn there that Jesus was about 30 years of age just after this moment of his baptism when he began his public ministry. Now, Sometimes we say Jesus was 30 when he began his ministry. It says about 30. That could be a few years younger. It could be a few years older. About 30 years old. Well, the Gospels let us know that just about the entire nation wound up hearing about what John the Baptist was doing as he preached and baptized there at the Jordan River. And multitudes from around the nation went to hear and be baptized by God's prophet John. Jesus himself came from Galilee, the trip down to, from Nazareth in his hometown and presented himself to the one we know to be his cousin John, John the Baptist, to be baptized. Look at verse 14. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? My goodness. Now, We learned last week that John was baptizing people as they repented and confessed their sin. It was a unique baptism. He was getting the nation ready uh, for Jesus. And this key moment came where this transition of sorts goes on, where we learn from John's gospel that as Jesus came came to that area, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. From verse 14, where John says, I need to be baptized by you, but do you come to me? From verse 14, we understand that John knew Jesus had no sin to confess and repent of. Indeed, from John 1.29, we know that John understood that Jesus was the perfect Lamb of God who was going to take away the sin of the world. Isaiah the prophet had said that all we like sheep have gone astray and the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all on him. On who? On the Messiah, Isaiah 53, 6. So John the Baptist in saying this is realizing, listen, everybody else here has acknowledged that they're a sinner and I'm a sinner doing the baptizing. God's raised me up for this moment to point to you. You need to turn around and baptize me, Jesus, not me baptize you. And so he was recognizing that Jesus had no sin that he needed to repent of. You know, in John, later Jesus uh, will say, Who, which one of you can convict me of sin? And nobody ventured an answer because he had done nothing that was sin in their midst. So what a wonderful observation from John the Baptist. I need to baptize you, not vice versa. Verse 15. Jesus got baptized anyway, viewing it as the right thing to do. Verse 15, Jesus answered him, 
Let it be so now. I told you this is the verse that makes me smile so much. Every time I think about it, it has for years. Let it be so now. For thus it is fitting. Say it's fitting. It is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now notice that Jesus didn't question John. uh, He didn't question John's essentially saying that he was not a sinner like John and all the other people gathered. As I said, John 8, 46, Jesus said, which one of you convicts me of sin? So when Jesus told John, go ahead and baptize me it was for its fitting, the reason it was fitting was not that he was testifying of having sins to be forgiven like the rest of us acknowledge when we get baptized that our sins have been forgiven by Christ. Instead, why did he say it was fitting in verse 15? Why did he say it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness? Well, the Greek word for fitting is the word prepo, and it occurs seven times in the New Testament. It means fitting, proper, appropriate, and acceptable. Go ahead and baptize me, John. It's fitting. It's proper. It's appropriate. It's acceptable. Here is one of the other New Testament uses of fitting and the reason why this sermon is called a fitting founder. Hebrews 2.10 Look at this, it says, for it was fitting, same word, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Think about it. Jesus would go on during his life and experience the same temptations that all of us do, but without sinning. He would experience suffering like all humans do, indeed to a level very few humans ever experience. And because sin brought suffering into the world, in a way he experienced the composite suffering of the world on the cross. No one ever suffered like he did. Here Jesus said that it's fitting for him to fulfill all righteousness. And the righteousness is a big word, but it can be broken down pretty easily into doing God's right things instead of sin's wrong things. Doing the holy thing, the thing set apart for God. Doing the right thing that God calls us to rather than any sinful wrong thing. We are called to be upright. We're called to be holy as he is holy. We'll never do it like he did. He was perfect at it. And... Here Jesus said it's fitting for him to fulfill all righteousness. What Jesus is indicating here is that he came to earth to fully identify with humans in every way and would model doing the right thing no matter how much he was tempted or suffered. I like how Jesus himself said it in Matthew 20, 28. It's also in Mark 10, 45. Even as the Son of Man, Luke's got a a verse of it too. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Isn't that a wonderful verse? Let's say that together. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. None of us is above doing what needs to be done when an act of service is required. You see trash on the floor, you can be the one to pick it up, right? Jesus himself, when he was here, said, I didn't come to be served like so many kings and presidents and others would do. I came to serve and I'm going to give my life as a ransom for many. Mm. Because of that, Hebrews 2.10 calls Jesus the fitting founder of our faith. If you believe Christians have a fitting founder, say amen. 
Amen. Well, there's two ways that Jesus' baptism shows he's a fitting founder. First, we're using this word identification again, that he identified with us. His identification with us in his baptism actually foreshadows his identification with us on the cross. When Jesus went under the water, it was to show he was going to die in the place of sinners. The water represents death. You drown there. His being under the water showed he really was going to die and be buried. His coming up out of the water showed he really was going to conquer the grave. And so Christian baptism is different than the unique baptism of John the Baptist. When you get baptized, when I get baptized, we are identifying by faith with his death, his burial, and resurrection. By faith, we were on that cross with him having our sins dealt with. By faith, our sinful selves were buried with him in that tomb. And by faith, when he rose, we rose also to lead the new life of faith and to be guaranteed an eternal seat in heaven and later on a new earth and a new body. Isn't that wonderful? At the moment we place our faith in Christ, a spiritual baptism happens in that moment. The Bible makes clear that anyone who's truly received Christ, anybody that's truly been born again, the Holy Spirit goes from being around them to being within them. And so the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our heart. That is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, we have later encounters with God, the Holy Spirit, that help us be flushed of sin and filled up with him in moments that we need for life and for ministry and things like that. But technically speaking, that spiritual baptism happens at the moment of salvation. And it does not need to be, and many times is not accompanied by speaking in tongues. Uh, We believe those are in error that say that speaking tongues is the evidence of the baptism of the Spirit or the evidence of salvation. 1 Corinthians 12 makes that an impossibility. It says you've all been baptized into Jesus Christ, you got the Spirit inside, but tongues is a gift that some but not all believers get. It cannot mean the evidence of salvation or that you've got more of Christ than somebody else does. And tongues are also in the New Testament a language spoken, so If you can be in Norfolk this coming week and speak Russian to a Russian sailor, praise God! He's given you the gift of tongues to reach that other person. At the moment we place our faith in Christ, that spiritual baptism happens to us. And then as soon as we can after salvation, we get baptized physically to testify that we're identifying with the one who has identified with us. Turn to Romans chapter 6. So from Matthew's gospel, go past the other gospels, Mark, Luke, and John, the book of Acts, and then you'll be at the book of Romans, Romans chapter 6. There are at least a dozen times that it says, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have died with Christ. It was as if you were on that cross with him, and you're the reason that he was there because your sins put him there. Romans 6, verses 4 through 6, it says, Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now check this out. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, we could use the words by faith there, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection by faith, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Do you ever think of yourself as having been crucified with Christ? 
that when he was dying on that cross, it was as if you were there with him. Well, that's what faith does. It says, I accept that substitute. This past week, I was reading the Old Testament, and I saw that Goliath stepped forward as the champion of the Philistines. And he said, hey, send out your best man. Israel, send out your best man. And when I whoop them, we've beaten you. Goliath was the Philistines' champion. And nobody would step forward from within Israel. Nobody from the army anyway. But a little boy who was checking on his brothers and bringing sack lunches to them said, who is that Philistine to defy God? Yeah, he's big, but God's bigger. Who is he to defy God? And he said, if nobody else will step forward by faith to be a champion for God who's going to do the work to kill the guy anyway, I'll step forward as a champion. And David stepped forward and David defeated Goliath that day. He was Israel's champion. And all Israel won that day because their champion whooped the Philistines' champion, Goliath. The son of David at the cross, Jesus Christ, defeated Satan the same way. He is our champion, and by faith, we identify with him. Now, I suppose you could have been in Israel that day when Goliath went out and said, I got my money on Goliath in this one. By faith, I'm turning into a Philistine here. I'm going to go with Goliath. But when their champion won, Israel won that day. And when Jesus Christ died on, the, died on the cross for your sins, you won if you've placed your faith and trust in him. What a fitting founder. What a fitting founder. This is one of the reasons why the New Testament so often speaks of the believer being in Christ. And in the early days of the church, sometimes when they were, trying, and they were amidst Roman uh, uh, oppression and persecution, Sometimes if one person thought, maybe that other person's a believer, they would just draw a, a, a boat. And the other believer would smile at them and they'd look at each other and they'd recognize the other believer might draw a Jesus fish, you know, the Jesus fish from the early church and things like that. What did the boat represent? It represented to them Noah's Ark, but it represented more than Noah's Ark. It represented that they were in Christ. When we baptize, we say, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life, identifying with his death, his burial, his resurrection. And when they drew that little boat, here's what they were doing. They were saying, you know what? Back in Noah's day, Noah and his family believed in God when the others didn't. God said, build a boat. God said, get in the boat. And they went into the ark and the door was shut and then judgment came. Judgment represented in a flood of waters. The waters represented death to all the living things, but Noah and his family and all the animals in there were alive, right? They were in the ark, and when the judgment came, they were raised to safety because they were in the ark. And early believers use that as an example, and they say, you know what? By faith, I'm in Christ. And when judgment comes, Christ is raising me up out of judgment because I'm in Christ, I'm in him. And over and over again in the New Testament, you see those beautiful two words, in Christ. Don't they make you smile? Say it with me. In Christ. I am in Christ. And you're in Christ too, if you believe. Many years ago, National Geographic carried a powerful story about the aftermath of a terrible forest fire in Yellowstone National Park. And the rangers were touring through and looking at the devastation that had come. And one ranger saw a bird literally petrified in ashes, perched stone-like 
on the ground at the base of a tree. And he thought, oh, that's such a sad thing. And you know, boys will be boys, men will be boys too. And so he decided, with my stick, I'm going to knock that thing over. And he went up and knocked the bird over. And as he knocked it over with his stick, he saw movement. Three tiny chicks scurried out from underneath their dead mother's stiffened wings. Apparently, the mother bird had instinctively known what to do to protect her children. You know, toxic smoke rises, so she gathered her babies at the base of the tree. She opened up those wings, and she said, babies, get in here. And she got them in there. She spread her wings over her babies and stayed there, even as the heat of the fire ripped into her feathered body. She could have flown away and saved herself, but she gave herself up so they could live. That's what Jesus has done for all of those who are in Christ. Aren't you glad he did that? Psalm 91.4 says, He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. What's our job? To scurry up on in there and say, I'm counting on him and being in him for salvation. It's not going to come because I do enough good things. I could never do enough good things. I'm a sinner before a holy God. I've got to receive God on his terms. Understanding that I was a sinner before salvation, I'll be a sinner after salvation. I'll never before or after do everything right that he wants me to do. But when I'm in Christ, I not only have his purchase righteousness, perfect righteousness counting for me, I have what to shoot for the rest of my life to be Christ's presence on earth, to do the things he would do if he was here. And together as a church, we want to do together the things he would do if he was here. Now, I believe when Jesus was baptized, he already had the entire company of the elect on his mind. I believe that was true on the cross as well. Now, when I say elect, I mean this. Every sinner who would trust God for salvation and get in Christ, that's the company of the elect. And I believe he didn't waste a drop of his blood. His blood is sufficient to save everyone who's ever lived, but it's efficient only for those who by faith get in Christ. And I believe it is baptism and on the cross, he knew that one day you would respond in faith and be his forever and ever and ever. What a fitting founder. So our fitting founder did the right thing by identifying with us, but the second thing he did this baptism was for us, is from his baptism we learn that Jesus will never ask us to do anything he didn't personally model for us. Think about Muhammad. Muhammad taught that Muslim men can have four wives. I believe one woman might be able to handle four husbands, but one man could never handle four wives. But the Islamic teaching is one man can have four wives. But he said, oh, Allah has told me you're the prophet. So you can have more. He wound up having 13. He wound up having 13 wives. Aisha was six years old when he married her and nine years old when he consummated that relationship. That's pedophilia anywhere in the modern world. That's no model there. He was so insecure Muhammad was so insecure that one time when a pregnant lady was criticizing, was criticizing him, he sent his thugs into the village. They slit her throat. They slit open her belly, put the baby on the ground to die, and they said, let it be known, this will happen to anybody that criticizes the prophet. 
No example there. Buddha left his wife and child at the palace. And you can be forgiven of such things. But he shirked those responsibilities. And only after that did he become the enlightened one. He rejected Hinduism that says suffering's an illusion. He said, no, suffering's real. I see it all around me. But he said, the reason you suffer is because of your wrong desires. You desire things that are wrong. And so that's why bad things happen to you. Well, that's horrible teaching, by the way. And you can be forgiven of leaving your wife and child, but you shouldn't be worshipped as a god. You shouldn't be looked to as a model, should you? And then there's Jesus. Born of a virgin. Did not have a sin nature, but he still had to get through life never sinning. And praise God, he got through life without ever sinning. The Bible says he was tempted in all ways as we are, but he never, ever sinned. And he is our perfect model. Now, we don't just follow his model. We, need, we believe he did something for us we didn't do for ourselves, so we have to identify with him by faith. But then we look to him as our model, don't we? Our perfect model. I mean, think about Jesus and modeling things. He calls us to pray. Did Jesus model prayer? <laughs> the disciples saw his prayer life and they said, teach us to pray like you do. Sometimes he'd be away from them for a few hours. He was going somewhere and praying. Sometimes he'd spend all night in prayer. He modeled praying for us, and then he says, I want you to pray. Ask, seek, knock. Elizabeth this past week was studying that. She said, hey, he said, ask, seek, and knock. And ask, A, seek, S, knock, K. Ask has ask in it. (laughs) Ask, seek, knock. You probably figured that out long ago. I said, that's great. I'd never seen that before. Um, we are called to love the least of these. Did Jesus model loving the least of these? The outcasts, the sinners, the ones that no one else would spend time with, the ones everybody else gave up on. Did Jesus give up on them? Seems like those are the ones he loved to spend time with on earth. He hated religious pretense, we know that. But there he would go. And he'd reach out and meet all the needs he could. And he could meet them all because he was God. What a beautiful foretaste of what life in him looks like as he made body parts work that weren't working and he's, as he forgave sins and went everywhere he went. He modeled for us what he asks us to do. We are called to sexual purity. If you're not married to remain a virgin until God brings that special someone into your life and marry. Once you get married, to have all your sexual fulfillment come from within those bonds of matrimony. For a husband and wife to come together, the only outlet for human sexuality that God approves of and can bless for bonding and procreation purposes. Well, many of you are single or you're widowed or a widower. And purity is a challenge now. And many of you within marriage, uh, things aren't necessarily clicking and going sis boom ba all the time in your marriage. And yet you're not turning to an affair. You're seeking to be pure within your marriage or within your singleness. Well, Jesus never married. Jesus went through life as a virgin who never committed any sexual sin. It's scandalous that there's some dirty-minded people out there that try to 
pretend like he did when he didn't, you know. But he calls us to purity, and purity can be tough. You know, when you're lonely on a Friday night and you can call somebody or you can get online there or whatever and you can have uh, some sort of uh, uh, needs you think met in that illicit relationship, it's tough not to do that instead to say I'm keeping myself pure for God. I'm washed and I'm waiting and if it means I never have anybody special like that. And in this, we would include those who love the Lord, and yet, if they were honest, they'd say, I I really have some kind of homosexual feelings. And so, Danny, does that mean I'll never be able to act out sexually my entire life? Well, yes, that's what it means, but you're not alone. Jesus calls you to purity, to not go there because you view it as what he does, sin against God. Whether it's fornication, whether it's adultery, whether it's homosexuality, whether it's transsexual stuff, whatever it is, God made you the way he made you. He doesn't make junk. He's got a purpose and a plan, and you're called to be pure for him. Did he model being pure? He absolutely did. He was tempted in all ways as we are, but never sinned. What a model for us. And we are called to get baptized. And he led the way in Matthew 3 and the other gospel passages. That's why when we baptize, we say that a person is following the Lord in believer's baptism by immersion. We'll look at verses 16 and 17. We read there of the triune God's presence and pleasure in Jesus' baptism. Verse 16 says, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water And we pause there and see that the New Testament teaches that the act of baptism is for believers only and by immersion. Acts 2.41, Peter preached his heart out. He preached to them to repent of their sins and turn to Christ. And then it says in Acts 2.41, those who gladly received his word were baptized. That's why we don't baptize infants. An infant can gladly receive a bottle of milk, but not the knowledge that they're a sinner and need Christ for salvation. That's an older child, that's a youth, that's a young adult, that's an older adult. Those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And then a few chapters later in Acts 8, Philip came alongside the Ethiopian eunuch's chariot. And the Ethiopian was actually reading from the Isaiah 53 passage. I quoted one of the verses from there earlier, and it says, who's this talking about? You know, obviously, years earlier, probably after Solomon had done so much gospel work or Old Testament gospel work from the temple and writing the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and other things that went out there, the Queen of Sheba came and turned to the Lord and went back home and other Africans turned to the Lord and they were following the Jewish ways and this guy had come up for a pilgrimage to the festivals in Jerusalem and there he heard Uh, he he got a scroll. He probably used a lot of money to obtain it. It was Isaiah, and it had 53 in there with all we like sheep have gone astray. The Lord has laid the iniquity of us all on him. And he said, can you explain this to me? And Philip did. Now, undoubtedly, out there in the desert as the Ethiopian was heading back toward Africa, he had some jars of water to drink, right? But apparently, they passed a lake, and he said, hey, you were just talking to me about expressing my faith. Now that I've turned to the Lord, you're expressing my faith in baptism by immersion. And there's a lake. Can I go ahead and get baptized? And Philip said, yes, if you believe with all your heart, you may, Acts 8, 36. The primary meaning of the Greek word baptizo is to immerse. Here's how John Calvin said it. He said, it's evident that the term baptize means to immerse 
and that this was the form used by the primitive church. Now, that's Calvin's Institutes. It's interesting, if you keep reading that section, he goes on to explain why he wasn't going to do it. <laughs> and the reason was because the state and church were so tied together that the reformers did so many amazing things. They got us back to that you're saved by God's grace alone, through your faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And they got us back to that our only authority is the scriptures, not the words of popes or councils or any of those different things. But they couldn't imagine church and state being separate. In those days, the way uh, people knew that the Vogeltances had a child was that the child would be brought to the church and sprinkled and christened eight days in or so. And they were following a Roman Catholic system that had been put on the state churches. And when the reformers broke away, they still did the state church thing. You were born into the state and the church at the same time. And the way the world knew a child had been born to your family was when you had that child christened. All the baptismal records of the infants showed that. And Baptists came along and said, wait a second. We are so grateful for that good Reformation doctrine that you're saved by God's grace through your faith alone in Christ alone. And we're so thankful for that, that, that God's word is our authority and nothing else. But the Reformation isn't going far enough. You magisterial reformers, you state-based reformers, still want to have everybody that's in the state be part of the church. But scripture is clear. You're born into the state. You're born again into the church. And the way you testify to the world that that's happened for them was what it was in the scriptures, as John Calvin admits in this quote. And so you're testifying publicly that I too take on these responsibilities of following Christ. I'm trusting him alone for salvation. I'm going to walk with him all my days. And I am covenanting together with those of you who have done the same thing. They call that regenerate church membership. And in our tabernacle acronym, when we say Baptist principles, it is about baptizing believers, yes, but more importantly, it's what Baptists have always thought. Churches need to be made up of born-again individuals who have personally accepted their parts of the responsibility for this thing, right? By the way, the first vote at the Westminster Assembly on the issue of baptism was only 25 to 24 in favor of sprinkling over dipping as the proper mode given to the Westminster uh, in the given in the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's so interesting because our early Presbyterian friends were clearly divided between continuity with state church practice and what was taught in the Scriptures. There, 25 to 24. Don't you think they should have at least gone with either or? Okay, like other state churches, we'll sprinkle, but we want to emphasize what it does here. And if you think, pastor, that that says, to, it's interesting. I've had some friends over the years, and they said, well, Danny, they're in my church, and they love all of our Presbyterian things, but they want to be immersed. Will you immerse them? And we found a way to make that happen. But the key is, the scriptures are clear. You're born in the state. You're born again into the church. And the way you testify to that is your moment of believer's baptism. Look at verse 17. It says, and behold, say behold. Behold, the heavens were opened to Jesus, and he saw the Spirit of God descend like a dove and resting on him. We don't know what that looked like. Like a dove doesn't mean as a dove. It's not like the wonder twin powers activate or anything like that, you know. Uh, the Holy Spirit's compared to like wind rushing through trees. Obviously, this beautiful, precious moment, you know, that people recognized as God at work. And behold, 
A voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Obviously, this is the father in heaven. And we rejoice here because all three members of the Trinity, the triune God, were present at Jesus' baptism. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. (laughs) This is my beloved Son. Later Jesus would say, or the Father would say, this is my beloved Son. Peter and John, Andrew, listen to him. This is my beloved Son. A beloved Son for a beloved world. I like to take God here saying, he's my beloved Son, God the Son, the beloved son of God the Father. I like to think of that. And then John 3, 16, where it says, God so loved the world that he sent Jesus. Jesus so loved the world that he went. The Holy Spirit so loved the world that he stayed. And he rents, he rends the hearts of those who wind up turning to God. A beloved son for a beloved world that God is not willing to perish, but that they should come to life, everlasting life in him. Now, some people have been confused And there's an entire denomination that unfortunately teaches uh, some of this. Some have been confused by some scriptures teaching that we are to be baptized in the name of Jesus and others like the great, great commission of Matthew 28 saying we're to be baptized in the name singular of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Name singular of the triune God. Don't let that confusion happen to you. There's no argument here. Um at least scripturally speaking. The triune name includes the name of Jesus, and it's all about the authority we have to be saved and baptized. You know, when Jesus says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it, it doesn't mean that we pray for what we want and say in Jesus' name, amen, and he's gotta do it. No, when we pray in the name of Jesus, we're taking what we think should happen and submitting it to his name under his authority. In olden days, if a king sent a note to a general, the messenger would go in the name of the king with the message from the king, and it wasn't the messenger's chance to say, okay, now I'm gonna go to the general and ask for what I want and say at the end I come in the name of the king. He would be misrepresenting the name of the king. So you're not baptized in the name of Jesus if you have the wrong view of what baptism is, that Salvation will come a little bit by believing and a little bit by your works. You're not in the name right. You're not under the authority right. And to come in the name of part of the Godhead is to be within the Godhead. Do you understand that? Let me say it like this. For instance, I may see you this week and I might invite you to dinner at Elizabeth and I's house. I can guarantee you after 31 years of marriage... I'm not inviting you to my house for dinner unless Elizabeth wants it to happen also. (laughs) I have the authority to extend the invitation to you, but it's only because I know we're in this thing together. And so when you come in my name, you're coming in the name of Danny and Elizabeth Campbell because we've already worked all that out. And before the earth ever was, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit worked it out. They said, because of what Jesus does for sinners, y'all all invited up here. You're coming under the authority of what Jesus did for you on the cross. You're coming to the all-glorious God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there's no argument going on up here. And so that's why when we baptize, we include 
the name of Jesus by saying, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do you get that? Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Here it is up there for you, I believe. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, all the ethnicities, baptizing them in the name singular of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Some of you heard me teach on this, but it staggers me. Speaking of authority, that Jesus says, I've got all the authority. You guys go and talk to people about Jesus. What's he doing there? He's delegating the authority to us to represent him based on what he's done and what the Bible really teaches. We have been deputized to represent. As sure as that time my dad shared with me the power of attorney because he was going on a trip and was going to be gone and I needed to represent my grandmom's interests during that time where he was gone and sure enough grandma died during that time and I had to make the decision to call hospice in and I was there holding her hand when she died. Dad had delegated that power of attorney to me. Jesus said, I'm going to heaven. All authority in heaven and earth is mine. You go, therefore. You go as my ambassadors. You go as my representatives. And when people believe the gospel message and as sinners turn to me for salvation, you've got the authority to baptize them in the name singular, not just my name, but of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're inviting everybody to the party of parties at the end of the age. And you've got the authority to do that. I've got the authority to do that. Isn't that wonderful? Now, I don't believe the physical act of baptism saves a person, but every believer in Jesus Christ should get baptized to show their identification by faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want to give you one more fitting passage. It's from Hebrews 7, 25 and 26. Because of these truths, consequently, Jesus is able. Say, Jesus is able. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Right now, Christ is in heaven praying about this moment. Not only for you to represent as you go this week if you're already a believer, but if you're not a believer, to you, for you to know if you come to Christ, you'll be his. He always lives to make intercession for them. But look what the next verse says. For it was indeed fitting, appropriate, proper. It was fitting that we should have such a high priest who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Bow your heads. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.